Welcome to Afterthoughts. This is the podcast where we give you your thoughts after we have watched something. Uh, tonight we have a pretty pretty interesting one for you, kind of in our run of anime as of late, and we have a new one to talk about. Before we get into that, I am your host, Brian King, and joining me tonight we have John Garcia. Hey, hey, I am uh, excited to talk about, I'm good to be back on track, you know, back on the anime circuit. Uh, we had a little bit of you know, a uh, rickety time there where we talked about the human live action anime known as Jimkata. Uh, but it, it barely count. You know, I think the judges just let us get by with it. Barely. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. All right. And also Michael Dixon. What's up, Ryan? You're back this week. What, uh, what happened? Where you been? You piece of shit. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, <laughs> I've been in, in a hole of bad movies that we will discuss at a later point. But we did watch one good movie. Uh. That's my bit. You can't take my job. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm trying. Um, yes, but we did watch one good movie. We're going to talk tonight about uh, Hayao Miyazaki, Studio Ghibli's brand new movie, still out in theaters, The Boy and the Heron. Mahito. So, you made it. Mother. Have a seat. It's this way, Mahito. A lot of strange things happen in this place. I just hope he stays safe. Save me. Save me, Mahito! What exactly are you? Your mother. She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. Its original title in Japanese, How Do You Live, which I think is a little bit better. We can talk about that. Um, but it was out this last weekend, took a chance to go see it. I went with my whole family. And I'm going to go ahead and just say, like, on the top, uh, we're, we're going to talk about it because we have to talk about it. And we're going to kind of spoil all of it. And I do think that this is something that you should experience just as an experience. And us getting into it and talking about, like, what does it mean? What actually happened? What is this? What is that? Well, I, I don't know that it would fully taint the experience, but I think if you're someone who wants to just really revel in it, it is better to just go watch it yourself. So then I'll say, now we're going to go into it and you can come back, pause and come back. Um, but high level, this is a, a boy who loses his mother. This is like World War II Japan. Uh, and he was in Tokyo. He loses his mother. Not exactly clear why she died, but she was in a hospital that burned down. He and his father then move out to the countryside. His father has remarried his aunt, the boy's aunt. Mm-hmm. Yes, not a, his own aunt. Not Very his own aunt. Yeah, yeah. His, yeah, his father's sister-in-law. His sister-in-law, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finds out that his family has some sort of connection to this tower that's nearby. Uh, and this heron shows up and starts talking and kind of fucking with him and then gets him to go into this tower. Then we kind of just open up to this, I don't know, other world and a bunch of weird experiences and, you know, your usual Miyazaki, bright, interesting, crazy things going on, symbolism, whatever, whatever, um, which we'll dig into. But that's kind of the basis of the story, I guess. That's a, that's the high level synopsis. Um, I enjoyed it quite a lot. My family enjoyed it. It definitely was a thing where at some point in I was like, yeah, I think the... I think at the end of this, I'm just going to be like to my family, did anybody know what the hell was going on? Like, that's kind of the impression <laughs> that, that I, that I kind of had. I did enjoy it, even like not necessarily knowing what was going on. This is, uh, 
I don't know, David Lynch for babies, David Lynch anime. <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch for babies. I, th- I think because it felt like that's a lot Eraser of like. Eraserhead is David Lynch for babies. Yeah, that's David Lynch about babies. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of A lot of surrealism, a lot of dreams or seeming to be dreams or dreamlike sequences um and just all metaphors all day without necessarily something that you can coherently put back together um i think it's there it's a little more together than some lynch but maybe you know it, it, then that's a little bit more story driven like there is some action going through um but yeah like I, I enjoyed it i think that this is probably not the best like first ghibli i don't know how many people would walk away and be like i need to see all these other ghibli or then go to the other ghibli and be like this is nothing like that one this is all like an actual story for a family versus this like interesting contemplative metaphor that i watched before um but yeah like i I really want to dig into it and see your impressions but john what was your take uh, well, I loved Hayao Miyazaki's Pan's Labyrinth, Ryan. Yeah, okay, um, there, that's I a good really one. I <laughs> really enjoyed <laughs> the, 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 the fucking dream sequences in it, uh, all the surrealism that's ridden throughout, the fucking weird-ass heron um, that initially looks like a regular heron and slowly over time becomes a grotesque, uh, like, short, older man. Um, I, I liked that with, like, a disturbing nose. His nose is, like, mm-hmm. just yeah. haunting my dreams now. You should get that looked uh, into, Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think this is my top, like for, for Miyazaki films. I don't know, uh, what it was about it. Maybe it is that surreal aspect to it, but I just also, the fact that it has a shit ton of parakeets in it probably (laughs) has something to do with it being a top for me. Um, I was like, hell yeah, birds, let's fucking do this. This is weird (laughs) shit. Uh, but yeah, like I, I, I enjoyed the fantasy of it. Um, after we talked about Howl's Moving Castle and I kind of came to terms with the fact that, uh. Mizaki does soft world building and the fantasy aspects don't need to have like a, a logical through line for a lot of it. You just kind of go with it and experience like the metaphors within. Um, I think it like primed me to really enjoy this. Like I, I sank into it. I was completely engaged the entire time. Uh, I went and saw the subbed version um, just because of time constraints. Uh, and I thought that it was really well acted. I enjoyed um, just like, all of the visual aspects and flair that are added to it. Like um, it does stuff that I think Miyazaki's played with before in like making characters kind of wiggle and certain um, aesthetics sort of pop. And in this instance, like I remember a lot of frantic sequences where things like even the drawing just got frantic and like the actual on-screen visuals just sort of started to shred into uh, these other kind of dancing lines and everything is really fucking cool. but yeah, in terms of like when I walked out of it, I was like, I'm going to need to see it again a few more times. I'm going to need to talk through whatever this is. But it is one of those movies where like it's been since Thursday, uh, like it's been like five days for me, six days, something like that, I guess. And uh, I still remember a lot of it vividly, um, having seen a lot of other movies between then and now and having to edit our Jim Cotta episode uh, <laughs> and <laughs> kind of like run through that movie again. Like uh, there's so much about it. I remember, and I want to go see again. Um, so yeah, I liked it. I really actually, honestly, I'd say that I loved it. I, I put it as five stars on my letterbox. Not that I care about stars, but I was just like, yeah, I fucking, I feel like I would give this up um, like easily for, for this. Uh, but yeah, uh, the music too is just fucking beautiful. And I, I want to go back just to hear that. Uh, I guess I'll just jam out to the soundtrack, the score on, on my own time. But 
Um, yeah, I, uh, there's not much else I can say about it uh, in terms of my Miyazaki. It's in my top, uh, it does not top princess Mononoke for me, but it's, it's up there. I think that it top spirited away for me. So, uh, my ranking is shifting. Yeah. Ever changing. So, yeah. I ended up uh, watching the dubbed version. Um, so, so that's I. good. We can, yeah, we can kind of compare notes. I also watched it in IMAX. That was my concession. Same. Nice. That was my <laughs> concession with the family. I was like, dub, sub. And they're like, oh, we don't want to read. And I was like, fine, we're watching it in IMAX then. <laughs> like, nice. yeah. One for me, one for you. Um, Dixon, what was your impression? Yeah. So I saw the dubbed version in IMAX. Um, I Before I saw it, I saw John's letterbox post and he rated five stars and his review was in japanese so i had it's like well i guess i'll have to wait till the podcast to figure out what john thinks about this movie other than that he liked it um so uh yeah i saw it at bullock uh, in downtown austin on the imax screen there and was really blown away by the visuals um the the characters are animated in the way that feels very familiar for a miyazaki film but the the backgrounds I thought were incredibly drawn and and like the the way nature was portrayed almost looked like an impressionist painting. Like a lot of times the foreground characters and typically kind of everything in anime, I think is generally like very hard lines. And in the background, like it almost looked like it was painted like the grass and trees and rocks and rivers and stuff that just looked absolutely gorgeous and looked, you know, very soft edges and very painterly feeling that I thought was really cool to see it. I, I don't know if maybe The Wind Rises did that a little bit, but definitely not Howl's Moving Castle or Spirited Away, which are the other Miyazaki movies that I've seen. Um, so I, I thought that was really beautiful to look at, especially on a big IMAX screen like that. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this a lot. There are definitely plot points that don't get wrapped up or go anywhere. And like that kind of reminded me of Howl's Moving Castle in some ways where some of the plot points don't go anywhere. Some wrap up a little bit too quickly and too neatly. And you're like, I wish that was explored a little bit more. But for the most part, it's this wild movie in this incredible world that is depicted in, in this film that I, I thought was just pretty beautiful to to look at. The English dub, the the voice acting was all... Great. I had no idea until the credits rolled that Robert Pattinson voiced the Heron, yeah. um, which was fucking like I had, you know, no, never would have guessed that until the movie was over. Um, Florence Pugh does two characters in it. She she does a really good job. And, um, you know, there, there's a like Christian Bale is, is back from Hell's Moving Castle and does the, the father character. So there's, there's a lot of good um, English voice work in the film. Um I think like there are, again, there's some stuff that doesn't really fully wrap up um, like the Heron. I I want to get into that. Like what, who the fuck is this guy? Why is he here? What is his, his deal? Um, that's never really explained at all, despite him being a titular character in the film. But um, you know, it's, it's really the story of the boy and the story of his granduncle who's this kind of mysterious figure in the background that comes into play later in the movie and, and kind of how that all ties together. I think it's an interesting analysis of the way this boy is trying to deal with the trauma that he's experiencing with the death of his mother and a change of scenery and dealing with a new mother figure and kind of escaping into this fantasy world to deal with that while you have the granduncle character who has basically abandoned his family in order to create a fantasy world that potentially other people can experience and maybe use that to learn about their own selves and trauma and situations and I, I thought that was an interesting dynamic it feels like Miyazaki writing about himself to uh, to some degree but uh, interested to dive into it and hear more about what you guys thought 
Yeah, I think high level, like I, I did want to kind of say, I've seen a lot of people, you know, coming up with their interpretations or quote explaining it to everyone, which I think is just for clicks uh, for the sure, most part. Yeah. I, I think that, and there's a little bit at the after credits, um, at least in some versions, uh, where Miyazaki comes on and gives like a real quick statement where he says like, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you probably don't understand all of it, but I don't understand all of it myself. Hmm. Trying to like get across, like, don't worry, like this is supposed to be where you feel like you interpret it or you, you know, he's sort of letting mm -hmm. go of that, like author intent. He's like, it's our thing to watch together and figure out what we get from it. Um, because I think, I don't think he was sitting here and meticulously laying out like, oh, this needs to be exactly this. And this draws exactly from this thing. And I'm saying this about Studio Ghibli or myself. This is much more him painting with some pretty broad strokes. So there definitely is the like, yes, he's drawing on himself and he's meditating on, you know, what is he passing on to the next generation and what is their responsibility to take on things. But I don't think he's like specifically like, shitting on studio ghibli like taking over <laughs> yeah. or his own son or anything like that i think it is the broad contemplative thoughts of passing things on on loss on dealing with that loss yeah like all of those things are there but they're not like specific the way people are looking for like oh this specific thing is this and these are drawn to look like that. i saw a lot of stuff where they're like oh these things look like and reference all these other movies and i'm like you haven't seen a lot of miyazaki movies if you don't see the same shit over and over again, his designs and his animations, like he has certain things he likes to draw old people the same way, especially old <laughs> ladies. Right. Oh, and yeah. there's a lot of like his effects for fire and things like that that repeat. Um, in particular, one that stood out to me that I think is funny that I haven't seen in any interpretations when he comes to the house and the old ladies are all like, I don't know, swarming over the luggage. Uh, in this yes. like unbelievable otherworldly way it's exactly from princess mononoke where the hunters like swarm over the dead boar it was yeah. like the same animation i'm like no one's pointed that out and been like oh he's talking about mononoke because i'm like they don't know they don't watch enough shit to catch like <laughs> that that's the same type of animation but not the same thing like he's not saying the same thing so that, at least that's my feeling is like i don't think he's trying to be like so particular in this and i think that's what gives it some of the disjointed qualities is he is just like this would be cool or this gives this feeling and it doesn't necessarily connect and that's okay yeah it's funny because i saw somebody else's review about it and they gave it i think three stars and were again i don't really care about stars but that points me to somebody who was like middle roaded on it and they were just like I don't understand the rules. Like what's the logic about? And I was like, did you watch the same movie? Did you need rules for this? Because like that person, what did they watch David Lynch and go like, I don't understand. Like why yeah, is that possible? How do those people the get same tiny? person here? Yeah. What like, is the garbage uh, wizard doing? <laughs> what is the cowboy about? What is that? <laughs> um, if you do good, you'll see me one more time. If you do bad. You'll see me two more times. Is that Robert Pattinson is there. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah like I, I really enjoyed the the kind of descent into that abstract that surreal it, it did feel like conjured that like alice in wonderland that pan's labyrinth the only reason i kind of reference it is they both take place during a war um like a traumatic uh violent event and they both center around children who want an escape who find a fantastical escape who are made like the center of a story as the heir to something mm -hmm. Um, and I think that in both, it's like working through childhood trauma. There is that 
like not even just like Miyazaki working through childhood trauma, just like Japan's like youthful trauma, like whatever was inherited with World War II. Um, I, f- I feel like the beginning sequence when the mom dies, it, it really seemed like very similar to like the Wind Rises had a, a opening traumatic sequence with like an earthquake and like all these people being lost. And it, the moment that I saw embers and like a hospital on fire, I was like, the hospital catch fire. Is this a firebombing specifically from like the US? Was there something else that happened? And they just don't really address it. They go like right into it doesn't matter. It's it's just this traumatic event of like loss that's going to happen, like no matter what. Um, and I, I thought that like just moving on from there and being like, you just need to know that this kid experienced something so awful and like heartbreaking and now has to just kind of suck it up and act like he's normal and he's moving on. And like, Hey, his, even his, his new mom is his aunt who looks exactly like his mom did because they're related obviously. But to him, it's like. Oh my God. Like he has that meditation of like, she looks exactly like mom. Like, I can't believe. Um, and it, he's like, just so put off by that, um, that it, it adds to that dreamlike quality of like, you see a familiar face of somebody, you know, but they're not the person, you know, and mm-hmm. just keeps digging into it. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I definitely see the parallels with Pan's Labyrinth. The movie that I actually thought about was Petite Maman, which is a, you know, French indie film by Celine Siama from a couple of years ago. And, um, without, giving away too much about either film like basically both of the movies have a traumatic event at the start and then a way for a child to interact with their mother in a way that is like outside of the normal mother-child relationship in order to kind of gain a better understanding of who their mother is and a different appreciation for for her um i felt like like Petit Beaumont is just about that and that movie is incredible you should go check it out um, the boy and the heron, I felt like that plot point was one of the most interesting parts of the movie to me, but it felt a bit rushed. Like that was one of the plot points that felt like it wrapped up a bit too quickly. Um, and maybe because I was identifying Petite Maman in it, a movie that I really love, I was like wanting to explore that more as I was watching the boy and the heron. Yeah, they're definitely like character relationships that get it's almost like there's an instantaneous connection between characters. They like see each other and there's something with um, the familiarity of it, or they're just immediately endeared. And uh, I can definitely see how that feels like it's like skipping steps, but that's where I kind of lean on that surrealist dream logic of like, you see a face and you recognize that face and you're just like, okay, I guess I can just like trust this person. Like I can go in this other world. Um, But like, we don't get to that world for a while. I thought we would get there like faster when yeah. it started uh the first half of the movie is very grounded and realistic yeah yeah he's just kind of having his dreams it, it's like that it just it destabilizes your sense of what his reality is and like whether or not the fantastical world is real um and like by the end of it i was like i guess it was uh i'm pretty sure because um a lot of people are getting pooped on by parakeets in the <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs> i guess that's the the rain of reality <laughs> showering down on them um <laughs> But yeah, like that whole opening sequence where they go out to or just that that establishing part where they go to the estate and um, what's our boy's name? What's the hero's name? Mahito. What is that? Karen keeps saying it weird. Mahito. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're invited or whatever. Mojito, yeah, yeah. So, like, Mojito, um, yeah, he's he's just kind of, like, getting a lay of the land, walking around, exploring, doing what kids do. Um, he's trying to keep his uh, attention anywhere but on, like, the war and what his dad's up to. And his dad works at, like, an airplane factory mm-hmm. um, or something. Like, he just goes there every so often to make sure people carry the the tops of the planes around and put them down. Yeah. He's like a war profiteer. Like he, yeah, he yeah. runs a manufacturing plant that makes like fighter plane wind windows. Yeah. Um, and like, uh, his, his new mom spends most of the time being pregnant and, uh, just like relaxing and trying to like check on him and make sure that he's okay. And she's kind of determined to win him over, um, and then there's the horde of old women that seem so to run the place. Oh, yeah. Like, where, who are these people? Where did they come from? What's going on with all? Of like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they, they're there. They they roam in packs and then they take out everything in the path. <laughs> That's they right. Take all they, your they shit have out like, of your bag immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Random old dudes nearby that are just smoking, and the old women are jealous when they have cigarettes. Or <laughs> um, that was kind of the one thing that I I haven't seen in other. Uh, Miyazaki films that I that I can recall is um, that depiction of like even in the wind rises a lot of the focus was um, around like the engineering of uh, the zero one and like the metaphors in between and kind of the wartime stuff but I didn't hear anything about the scarcity of resources or supplies like there wasn't a lot of those conversations and like here immediately all of the old people are like oh my god you got like canned tuna like you got like uh, whatever kind of beef and these other things and like tobacco. Yeah. We have like tobacco. One guy was like burning some other kind some of weed. Fucking weed. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, it's like the best I can get without tobacco. <laughs> um, just like that desperation kind of lining everything around, uh, Mojito. Um, and he's over there just kind of like, I gotta be bored at this place. I gotta like, I guess I could go fishing or I could try to explore whatever this weird tower is. Um, I feel like it just did a really good job of establishing like, yeah, this is the world that he lives in again. Like I think Pan's Labyrinth does a similar thing uh, and has that kind of like, Oh, you get to see how shitty some people are. But in this one, you don't really see anybody who's shitty except for the Heron. Mm-hmm. Heron's a, a real piece of shit. That dude, he's uh, <laughs> at least for a while. Like he kind of wins me over as, as it went on. But initially I was like, you're f- the fuck's your problem. Yeah. He starts <laughs> off pretty dickish. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the beginning of this is, really sets up that that is the real world and real experiences in a way that you know most Miyazaki either fully take place in a fantasy realm or you sort of enter a fantasy realm fairly early on you mentioned Spirited Mm -hmm. Away like you're into the other realm like as the credits are going essentially Mm -hmm. like the open is going in there um, where this one does take quite a while War does loom in the background of a lot, but at the beginning, I felt like we got, you know, not only, you know, maybe the firebombing, but the fact that they needed to move away from Tokyo, like for that fact, the fact that his dad is building these planes and we see them a couple times. Uh, we see a guy who's been drafted, uh, you know, going through town oh, and yeah, sort of like bow. morose parade celebrating him being and they stop and bow and bow. Yeah. And so it's like a little more on the nose usually than his, but still like it isn't directly about war. And even, yeah, in the same way that like The Wind Rises has a lot more of the war around it, but still isn't ex- it really about the war either. Um, but that one's like the one that's fully in the real world. Um, unlike yeah. this one that transitions. I do feel like this, especially the beginning part uses silence uh, 
and the subtle slowness a lot, um, which I look back and I'm like, that is kind of one of Miyazaki's, I think, staple things that's interesting comparing it to other anime or other modern um, animation is he will stop and revel in silence or zooming in on something that's sort of just a small day-to-day thing to give it some reality. So like someone putting on shoes, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, at the beginning, he's kind of like running back and forth to get his clothes and his shoes and all that to get out of the house to try to run to the hospital. Um, Or yeah, him just kind of like looking around the house in the woods and the sort of contemplative moments. Uh, And we get a lot of silence where we hear music or we hear nothing and we see the people in the background or distance talking and get the impression of what's going on without needing to directly have all those conversations. We kind of get the like speed up of him going to school and everybody not accepting him as the new person in a silence. Like we don't hear any of that dialogue. Yeah. I I really wanted to say like at the beginning, I thought that the beginning is such like a big, you know, in a way flex uh, for an animation studio, for an animator as well to focus on um, like the sequence of trying to run to save his mom one, it's it's just as a as an entire segment, um, fucking gorgeously animated because it takes so much time for Mojito to get his clothes on, which is something that in another animated film they would cut. I would say they probably cut corners and yeah. be like, just show him running out of the house. Just show him running out of the house. It's too late. He's going to get there and she's going to be gone. Like, uh, we'll just do that. But here it's like he's panicking, running back and forth. He throws on pants. He like actually tries to kick through them, has shirt that he's throwing on. Like every article of clothing is given love, like in the way that he has to put it on um, and, and the way that's animated. And then immediately when he runs from that very realistic and grounded sequence of putting clothes on, the streets just start melting and everybody around him is like hazy and smoky and like that just that rush of anxiety that's visually represented as he runs toward the burning hospital I was in awe when I saw it and was just like, holy fuck, like they they took the time to do like this kind of thing to set it up that way. And then they pull everything back so that you can just have some tranquil peace in the countryside and understand that like things in Tokyo are chaotic and frantic and like whatever you thought was like a semblance of home is like gone, uh, has been burned and like these those kinds of things. It was just, um, yeah, just impressive. Um, But that opening scene is also incredibly dark. And I I was really impressed that they were able to animate it so darkly. Like they had the stones to do that to where like you kind of got to be in a movie theater to be able to tell what's going on Mm. or like really turn all your lights out at home. And typically in animated movies and dark settings like that will have like a torch or a flashlight or something or it's just kind of some fake light to make you see the characters a little bit better. And it's like, oh no, the dude's waking up in the dark, in the middle of the night, there's really no lighting around and they animate it in a way that feels a lot more real for that type of scenario. Yeah. It's pretty dangerous playing with like that much shading and shadow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. You just really don't see that done. I was going to say the beginning of the movie is where it really draws a lot from Miyazaki's own life, um, like directly influencing um, and, and has some of the things that we see him explore in multiple other movies. Um, namely his mother was sick and in the hospital for a long time with tuberculosis. Um, and he explores this, either a mother being sick, like in, uh, Totoro or seemingly someone like losing a parent. And then he had to move out of the countryside from Tokyo during the war. And we have many times where character moves to this out of a city into a new location, usually to a countryside 
And even something like Kiki's Delivery Service is an exploration of this new, like moving to this new area and kind of finding all these things and finding yourself through that, um, which is Miyazaki, like growing up in that countryside and being thrown into that to like get to explore. And he spent time just on his own in that, you know, definitely of the time period, the kid is just like, you know, you have the day to do whatever you want. You can go wander away, you can wander into town, you can go wander through the woods like you're just let loose. Try to chase and kill a heron. Why not? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Build your own bow. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> um, and yeah, no one really even necessarily questions you. You're just good to, you know, good to go and go on your own. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that kind of like exploration, like getting into that and the growth through that we see just starting in the beginning. Also, I felt like this was the juxtaposition of Eastern and Western and the sort of new and old, again, something that he grapples with quite a lot. And, and yes, has very much been a grapple for Japan as a culture uh, since World War II. Um, but his father in the Western dress, you know, very much a businessman, you know, building the new weapons, which are Western weapons, you know, in invention. And his new mother in traditional clothing, in a traditional house, um, everything like presented very like slower Eastern style where his dad's like rushed and hurried and is like, I don't even have time to go. I got to go to the, like, I got to go to the factory. I don't even have time to stop and say hi. Right. He's like on a whole nother timeline than everybody else and coming and going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, um, why don't we talk about the introduction of the heron? Because I think we've talked about the grounded establishing moments and like all the characters and cast, these weird old ladies who are just helping like this young kid around and telling him the lore of, the towers nearby, they talk about like how his uncle maybe went mad, who knows, hold himself up there and they sealed off that, that tower nearby. I like how they say that the granduncle, like he was reading so many books and then he left in the middle of a book. And I'm like, yeah, probably a lot of people have like left or died in the middle of reading a book. Like that's not a strange yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. So said he was too smart and that's why he went crazy or he read too many books <laughs> he too and many that's books why he went, and crazy. went crazy or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's what happened. Okay. <laughs> He finally found the Necronomicon and he read it <laughs> or, or the never ending story. That's probably yeah, why he never he finished it. The never ending story, yeah. 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 <laughs> he, he found a Ben Shapiro's book. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that there was a boy in a heron, hypothetically speaking. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, like the 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 heron immediately introduces itself um, the moment that uh, Mojito gets there. It just like f swoops through weaves through like the corridor, the outdoor breezeway uh, of the the estate, and um, his new Mahito's new mom is just like, "Well, uh, wow, I guess he just wanted to come greet you." And initially, I thought like, I didn't watch any trailers for this movie. I had no idea what the heron was going to do. I don't know if the trailers even showed what the the heron was going to do, but. I was like, oh, the boy and the heron, they're probably going to become friends. That's what this movie's called. That's clearly what it's going to be about. What a gentle film. Uh, yeah, what a gentle <laughs> film and a gentle creature taking place during World War II in Japan. Uh, and, uh, and then like the second time you see the heron, it's like looking in through a window. And then I saw all of its teeth, like a fucking weird grin. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. like, that doesn't sit right. I don't know what that's about, but I don't like that. <laughs> and then like the rest of it is literally just the heron slowly trolling him 
more and more saying his fucking name and being fucking weird about it. Like, you know, <laughs> like the fish and the frogs. Oh, man. Telling him that his mom's alive. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, it's like a Stephen King novel in a way. It was just like, oh, my God. Uh, Where's the red balloon? <laughs> <laughs> red rum. <laughs> uh, yeah. And like that. I think the real first sequence that um, the fantasy really takes hold is that I think it's his first dream when he, he like goes out to the, it's when he goes out to the lake, I think. Yeah. He's like going out to the river or lake or whatever and seeing the heron. Yeah. And the heron just starts telling him that his mom's alive. And like, then the fish starts singing, like come with us, like join us. And then one of us. Yeah. And then like, (laughs) The frogs or like toads all start swarming over him. And it's just this, like he's being enveloped by like all of these creatures. And then his, his new mom just like shoots an arrow and scares the shit out of everybody. And that's when he gets the idea to like make a bow and arrow. He's like, Oh, he saw it in the dream. That's what he's got to do. Um, he also tries to hit the heron with like a, a he, kendo stick. Yeah. He takes like a, a kendo stick out. And when the heron flies at him, the heron like snaps the stick. And so then after he wakes up, and that this, you know, seemingly was a dream. He goes to see the kendo stick is still like where he, where it was to begin with, uh, and he picks it up and it instantly shatters like it did in the dream. And then later, when he goes and sees uh, his stepmom, she does have a bow like the bow that he saw. So yeah. the, the, a lot of the beginning, we start to get some of these elements where he's thrown into this world that's like seemingly surreal. Like all the little old ladies, it seems like too weird. They, they just mm-hmm. seem like there's too many and they're all kind of weirdly mm-hmm. drawn uh, and they all act very weird. And so, yeah, he has a lot of these things in the beginning where you're kind of like, what exactly is going on? Was that dream? Did that happen? Like, it's unclear. That is after he already came home, correct? After he, like, had gone to school. Yeah, yeah, because he hits himself in the head with a rock. Um, he wants to not go to school and to get out of it, he gets in a fight. And he gets his ass kicked, but he doesn't get his ass kicked enough. So then he hits himself in the head with the rock and bleeds a lot, like a lot. I yeah. was so surprised. Yeah. Head wounds. That was one point of the movie that I was like, uh, I feel like we should be more concerned about this. You know, they're just like, oh, yeah, he's fine. Oh, you don't have to go to school anymore. You get to be at home and fuck around. But like, like this kid just tried to hurt himself like real bad. Like, and it, the movie kind of just moves along and um i don't know if that's just a symptom of the trauma that he's going through with his mom passing and being relocated and all these things but um it was very alarming to see him do that just pick up a rock and slam the side of his head with it and then like you're aware of that throughout the rest of the movie because he has a scar there and they have to like cut his hair around it to treat it but it still just feels like almost that it is not given the weight that it it should have for the seriousness of that type of act like um, I don't know. What, what did you guys think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I know later he references that scar as being like this mark of, uh, of malice or it's like an, it's mm-hmm. like an original sin thing in a way where he's just like, I'm not pure. Like I just don't, you know, I'm susceptible to corruption just like anybody else is. This is, you know, like it was, it's a mixture of like a lie and it's uh, a mark of violence upon him. Like any human is corruptible in that way. And so I, I saw it as like two points. It was like, okay, there's the metaphor that's imbued in it. It's supposed to be that symbolic mark on him. And then the other was, it's another point of disorientation where you're not really sure if he's still seeing, like if anything that he sees after this is real, like that kid has a concussion 
Oh, definitely. Clearly yeah. has a lot of blood loss. Like there could be something that he just knocked loose with that, <laughs> that rock. Um, and so I, I kind of saw it from that point where it just, uh, I think that it just serves as another point to be like, you can never really explain everything that you've seen in this movie. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I did like his dad swearing that he would avenge him. He, that's all yeah. he cared about. What? Yeah. His dad. <laughs> yeah. He's like, who's done who's this it? to you? You who's just it? tell me. <laughs> I'll fucking rip his balls off. Just tell yeah, me who it was. Name. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that was a very shocking scene in the way that it was given. And again, that was in that silence uh, after the school where he, he does that and you don't hear anything. You just see it and you see the blood and it's an excessive amount of blood. Uh, but head wounds do that. Like even a small yeah. wound to your head can, can gush quite a bit of blood. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I, I went to it with my family, so definitely, you know, some gasps, um, especially from my daughter, because it is so violent, um, and shocking in the moment. And, and usually a rare for a Miyazaki film to have like blood or violence like that. Suddenly princess Mononoke obviously has that and mm-hmm. has some of the more like shocking, sudden snaps of violence um i do think that there's a a bit of yeah he wants to get out of school they're also through most of this mihito is very subdued almost not showing emotion or reaction to a lot that's going on he's obviously Mm -hmm. grappling with this you know the the loss um and this did feel like one of those potential self-harm situations as well where he's you know mad mad at himself, mad in general, you know, frustrated about the school stuff, you know, a bit of an attention. Like there's so many things that can go into that act of that anger that snaps and he, and he does that to himself. Um, and it's unclear exactly. And it may not even be clear to him, you know, why exactly he did it. Um, and then, yeah, to have it like there, it is always in the background, even though it's not directly dealt with again, it's always in the background of this, to see that, to see the scar, to have it referenced, the old women and his father like reference it or tell him to stay in bed or things like that. Like it kind of keeps coming up. And I, I would say we don't really see him have emotion until he reads the book. And then that's when afterwards he goes into the other, you know, the other realm. And we start to see him kind of grow some more emotion and grow into himself there and finally kind of like come back, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I, so I want to ask you guys more about like the heron and who this, who or what this thing is and what's going on here, right? Like, John, you hinted like, you know, oh, the heron has these weird teeth that, that look mm-hmm. very, I uh, hate birds with teeth, very creepy and odd. <laughs> and then like later you see him again and he's talking and his mouth gets a little bit, bit wider and you see like this weird, gross nose sticking out. And then like, you know, eventually you see that it's just like, like it's a weird little short dude in a heron costume, but like the heron costume just turns him into a heron. And I kept expecting like at the end of the movie for them to just be like, oh, he was cursed by a witch and now he's freed and whatever. He's good now. Like a Howl's Moving Castle cursed type the witch of, of, the waste. of thing. Yeah. But they never really discuss that at all. He's just like, you just come to ex- expect that. Oh, yeah, he's a he's a weird dude with a heron outfit and he can pull off the heron head and have a human head and walk around and be a pudgy little Danny DeVito guy but um <laughs> then like I then the movie just you know kind of ends like he gets a little bit better understanding with Mahito but they don't really 
come to a friendship or a resolution and the movie just kind of over it. And Mahito has more of an arc, I think, than the Heron does. But um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about the Heron as a character and what like what is this thing and what is it supposed is it supposed to represent anything or am I just looking for meaning where I should just be um, having fun with the movie? As a character, it's it's interesting because I do feel like this movie paints with the grays a lot, um, which I think Mononoke has, and I feel like Spirited Away also has, where there's not... There's some characters that seem very antagonistic at the beginning that you later kind of see, you know, well, th- there's a lot of different things going on with them, and they're never fully, like, good or fully bad, and I think the Heron's in that spot where he's... Yeah. almost Like, almost a bit of, like, a trickster god, um, yeah. like, luring him in, and then, you know, like, th- there's the moments where after he's uh injured him and he's like fixing it like corking up his nose and he's like i'll help you i'll do whatever fix it and then immediately is like ah i can get away i'm betraying you like and then immediately goes back to like wait it's not working can you help me again <laughs> like just that <laughs> that switch back yeah. and forth so quickly of like you know is he is he really wanting to betray me or does he really care about me like you're never really fully sure um he does say that the grand uncle created him um but that's not entirely clear because like what the grand uncle made or didn't make, I don't know. That's one thing. Uh, he does seem to have some amount of magical ability, but he can use it outside of that realm where we don't really see that elsewhere. Uh, the parakeets just go back to being fucking parakeets when they come out. Right. The um, normal sized parakeets. Yeah. So like, is he, was he a heron or was he a man or is he like both? That's not clear. And he doesn't like disappear when everything else unravels and he's able to come to the real world and just be in the real world and yeah so i think it was just that's very wide open and not explained at all like i had no idea where he came from yeah i i didn't have any strong takes on like that he was supposed to have an arc or anything but i just know in terms of like uh, most mythological stories and fantastical tales there is usually it's either a trickster god or it's some kind of like woodland elf or something that's like mischievous, but not nefarious that just tries to lure you into a certain place. And there's uh, that hint uh, early on when like you can see the great grand uncle um, who's just kind of like at the top of the the tower. Once uh, Mojito goes in past like the gate and he's like, tell, show him the other world. Like I just command you to do it. And the heron is like, all right, fuck it. I guess I'm going to do this. And then he doesn't um, though. And then he, he doesn't <laughs> he at all. He just like, you don't him see just, him for yeah. another 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he just kind of is like, all right, I guess, uh, the only thing that he's really done is like, he runs a decoy ploy for him once and he saves Mojito later, um, right. from like the, the human eating parakeets, uh, those massive weird humanoids. <laughs> those things were awesome. Yes, they were. <laughs> no, what the point was of that, but I was like, oh, this is hilarious. Like just massive beefy parakeet just <laughs> yeah. patrolling around the fantasy world to just like eat anyone who comes near them. It was just yeah. hilarious to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that that's I never picked up anything else from the heron other than he's mostly mischievous. He's mostly in it for himself. There is something slightly sweet about him that he occasionally is like i guess i can help you sure why not um but uh yeah beyond that i didn't think he needed an arc i was happy with him just fucking around and being a weirdo um especially because there's also like a camaraderie he has with some of the other birds like 
the pelican that's fucking dying, that like old pelican that's just mm. bloodied. That was such a traumatic sequence of him just being like, just fucking kill me. Like, just do it. Um, and the, the heron being like, oh, you just fucking do this and you walk away and then seeing Mojito go and like actually bury the bird and have this like reverie. I think that that kind of tr- like just changed something in the heron. And that was really the only thing that I saw where he was like, oh, you're not an asshole, kid. You're just, you know, you and I yeah. got off on the wrong foot, maybe. I don't know. That pelican yeah. was voiced by Willem Dafoe in our version, so you, you, know, uh, you missed yes, out on that. man. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, um, very small going. role, but always, always great always to see great. Willem. Mm. Strike me down, Winslow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, the there are several different birds that we see, right? There's the pelicans, which push mojito through the gate and then later are eating the soul babies kudamas Kudamas, whatever they are are. um but then yeah again when the when we see the dying one he's like oh well the uncle brought us here and he gave us fucking nothing to eat and like this is all we have and like yeah my wing is broken just put me out of my misery i have nothing now um and then the parakeets, like whatever the fuck. <laughs> Again with the parakeets, I wonder, like, are they also there where they have nothing and they're, you know, trying to eat humans because they had no purpose that the uncle gave them. Yeah, they talk about seeing their ancestors too later. They're like, oh, the ancestors or something. I don't know if they say it in English, but in the dub, they or the sub, they were like, hey, look, it's our ancestors when they got to the paradise section. Um, and oh yeah, I was yeah like, they say That's that. Yeah, they see like the okay the like parrots or something that were flying around there. Yeah. 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 And I was like, that's interesting. So he like brought them to this world similar to the Pelicans, but he made them evolve into man eaters or something. And then they just completely took hold and And took over that world. Yeah. They just became fascists. It was like, wow. (laughs) Hey, the grand uncle's just balancing the blocks and you know, shit happens. You got to do whatever you can to keep that thing standing up. Sometimes you put a cylinder in, sometimes you put a ball. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how those spheres balanced so well. He's, he's a grandmaster of, of balancing. Honestly, he's practiced all his life. He's had nothing but time. (laughs) Sometimes you create a beautiful house. Sometimes you make a Mussolini parakeet, you know? Uh, yeah, we let's talk about the fantasy world. I want to I want to get into that a little bit more because uh, it's one of those like you know Alice in Wonderland has this has Wonderland which has a lot of fucking weird fucked up shit in it. Um, Pan's Labyrinth obviously has not really a a land of fucked up shit. It's more like a few sections of fucked up shit that like you can peel the world back from. This place seems like it has like the land of the dead, if I understood it correctly. In a way, I like a lot of the ships are dead people. It's like crossing the river time spikes. thresholds. Like there are there are souls that have yet to been born into human bodies. Mm-hmm. There are doorways into different times and places. You know, you have different versions of people in the past as their younger selves that they come across in here. And it's like it just feels like a kind of a random magic place where kind of any rules can apply. And it's it's unclear if this is like because it's a, I think the grand uncle talks about oh there's this asteroid that came down and it like imbued the place with magic and I had to build a tower around it to keep it safe and to create this world and to allow it to have this power and it's unclear if this is like is this representative of some sort of outside creative inspiration that has come into the world or is this like 
the the truth and power that is governing everything and there are actually souls that live in there before they are born and it's actually a way to pass through time or is it just a representation of of you know kind of a one man's creative vision and how he wants to think about things yeah there's also all the ships on the edge with the like black spirits or whatever they are that seemingly are dead i think kiriko maybe says something about them haven't been dead and they can't kill anything themselves but they need to eat um kind of a weird Mm -hmm. thing the the entrance when mahito comes back and he does fully enter it there is the like you know archway and on it is written in italian it says like essentially like this is from divinity or this is divine which um you always think of like the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno have that, you know, the phrase that we always say is like, you know, abandon hope mm-hmm. all ye who enter here. But there's actually like a whole fucking paragraph that's written on the gates in hell. And this line is one of the lines out of that. So it's a different line. Oh, interesting. Yeah. From that same bit. I don't know that this is like, again, people like are out there being like, oh, see, it's hell. He's moving into hell. But I was like, no, I don't think that that was exactly why that phrase was chosen. It was definitely to give a similarity or an impression of that entering to this other world like Dante, you know, entering into the Inferno. And that it is something that's, you know, this, the, it came from somewhere else that the power does kind of come from something beyond, um, whether it's divine force or, or what is unclear. Yeah. And we get different stories. Someone says like, Oh yeah, it just, the castle popped down fully formed tower. You know, and the, the yeah. uncle kind of says the other that he built it. Some people say, yeah, he went out and he built this crazy thing and put all these books in it and all that. Um, and it does seem to have like even when they go into the tower itself, its form changes a little bit and it's unclear. You know, like it's once like he enters it, it's ceiling. already gone. Yeah. Yeah, they like melt into the floor and then go into kind yeah. of crazy space. Which is kind of like another like level, I guess that like leans into some of that Dante's Inferno. There's like different levels to whatever this is. Doesn't have to be hell, obviously, but yeah. Um or like, the Alice in Wonderland like rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I do like that as I, I at one point the thought, so he meets uh Kiriko is one of the old ladies um that's running around at the beginning and she's trying to prevent he, he so i guess i want to i do want to back up a bit of like how he got into into the yeah. other world he sees uh his stepmom like wandering off into the woods and we've heard mentions from others that that his mom when she was younger and maybe some other people question mark were spirited away uh mm-hmm. and that that the, the people want to stay away from the tower if you're the tower uh he sees her going off into the woods i will say he just kind of was like eh and doesn't give a shit and then he he's at his desk fumbling around with his fucking bow and he knocks over a pile of books and he's going through it he finds a book with the the front of it his mom has written a note to him intending for him to find this book and read it later uh the book is how do you live the actual like book that um miyazaki read when he was younger that inspired him quite a lot uh, I've read it. It's hideously boring. It's definitely a book that is of its time. Um, I understand like how it could have inspired inspired a young, you know, Japanese boy at the turn of the the war. Um, but for now, it's a much slower paced, boring book. Um, but the gist of it, the only thing that's really important to it is that it's a character who is going through similar kind of a trauma and trying to find their place in the world. And the, and the key point of that book is that the character realizes, as a child does eventually that they're not the center of the world 
that they're just part of all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And Mihito reads through it. We see tears drop onto the book. I don't think he finishes it. It looks like he leaves it halfway, kind of like the granduncle did. But it, I, I do think it was enough for him to like connect, like, hey, maybe I should give a shit about this lady. You know, like, I, I know everything. I think it revolves around me, but I'm realizing like she's a person with her own things too. And she is just wanting to be a mother to me. Like, I do need, you know, and he, so he goes off into the woods then to follow her, and Kiriko holds on, drags him, tries to drag him back, but gets dragged into the, to the tower herself. And we see that a younger version of her, which I feel like seemingly she was there when she was younger. Like, this is the younger Kiriko who entered when Mahito's mom entered when she was younger. Mm. And the two of them had gone in. And then at the end of this, we see the two of them exit through a different door back to their own time period because his mom apparently just disappeared for like a year or two uh, when she was younger. Yeah, there's some annihilation shit the more that we talk about yeah. it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, just exactly. like They go into the glimmer and they just... And then time's just, whatever. Sorry, yeah. all you see was just a glimmer. <laughs> Not a Steven Seagal movie, Jeff. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, time kind of like exists all simultaneously within this other part. That's one of the other like strange attributes of it. But I, I did want to like... I, I got a little frustrated at a point because I was like, okay, the pelican fuck... Or the, no, you know, the uh, heron knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. The fucking Kiriko of the past knows what's going on. As he meets his younger mom, she seems to know the rules. He runs into his stepmom, she seems to know the rules. Everyone <laughs> but fucking Mahito knows what's going on and knows how everything in here works. And I was like, do you just have to be here like a certain amount of time and then you figure out how it all, like, or they tell you? Or like, what? And I do think us as an audience are supposed to follow the same, like, as Mahito. We just, we have no clue like what's going on or what the rules are. And he never really does or, or doesn't figure them out either. Yeah. yeah. And, and it feels like a place where you're seeing all these characters during points of struggle in their lives. Right. It feels like this is a place where they can recede to, I don't know if this is representing like a depressed state that they're in or a distraction that they can have to avoid dealing with whatever's going on in their lives. But like, you know, his stepmom is is pregnant and clearly not feeling very well and and you know recedes into the tower and then you know you meet his mother at a time when she was a, a child and clearly something is going on and unclear what that was and um yeah it, it feels like all these all these characters are there because they're trying to kind of run away from whatever's happening in their lives yeah and there's like the added elements of i mean i don't, I don't really know what the symbolism was behind mojito's mom controlling fire as opposed to being enveloped in it like she just is mm-hmm. one with fire after he you know after the incident that had happened earlier and it's like not even that that it seems like that just transcends time is it just like she's merged with it she's predestined to have died in a fire or have some kind of envelopment and relationship with it but she transports through fire she like uses it to fend off pelicans and uh like does all these other tricks with it um, and they don't really like address any of that. And he's not, he does not particularly impacted by that relationship she shares with it. He seems to just sort of understand. And, uh, it's, it's so fucking weird, but it is that again, that bizarre, like that dream infusion. I like thinking of this movie more as like annihilation. The more that I talk mm-hmm. about it, like yeah. walking through that 
permeation of these different versions of people and like the things that they come up against in different realms. And actually in the, in the book annihilation, there is like an inverted tower that goes down into the ground that they explore. That's not in the movie, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so he flashes back once or he flashes back several times to seemingly seeing his mom in the fire. It's unclear what happens when he gets to the hospital uh, mm-hmm. because everything around him like fades out and he either sees or imagines actually seeing his mom actually on fire dying. And in some of those flashbacks, it, she's like pained, but in some of them, it's almost like she's accepting of it um, and telling him like, it's okay. And I I will say that the fire is good and bad. Even when she fends off the Pelican, she kills some of the souls mm-hmm. and he he like points that out. And Kiriko is like, yeah, but that's what she had to do like to get the pelicans to go away. And I do think she kind of accepts at the, at the and now we absolutely hear she accepts her fate, right? Before they go through the door, he's like, you can't like, you'll go back and you'll die in that fire. And she's like, yeah, but I'll have you and you're good. Right. And so she already knows and accepts like the good and the bad that's going to come the pain, like that life is inevitably pain. And so I think it's like a little bit of her just like accepting the fire, like, and then by, being one and being part of it like she it has a power like she has a power with it and fire does have a good use and good powers even as dangerous as it is yeah it can warm you but it can also completely burn you um yeah yeah there's there's those balances to it um yeah uh should we talk about the parakeets should we yes <laughs> let's definitely let's tackle parakeets. <laughs> yeah uh but my favorite part of this movie um, I'm biased, uh, having four parakeets <laughs> myself and seeing them so lovingly rendered as a bunch of big muscle bros, <laughs> really fucking dumb and just want to eat everything in sight. I was like, this is exactly what parakeets would be like if they were human size, <laughs> 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 which I think like the heron gives the boy, gives Mojito the rundown. And he's just like, can't go in that place. Like the blacksmith, they, they like approach some house. They're trying to find a blacksmith. They're trying to uh, do something to, to, is it trying to find the grand uncle? I can't even remember at this point what his He's his trying goal to find was, his but... stepmom and the heron right. keeps telling him that he'll help him, though it's unclear. Yeah, he's like, Yeah, the blacksmith will know. He's and like, yeah, he's he like, oh, the blacksmith the also spot. uh he probably got eaten by these like parakeets. Shit. Uh these <laughs> parakeets eat men and uh whatever. Uh, I'll distract them and you just go right on in to the blacksmith's house and it'll be good. Like classic fairy tale shit where it just seems like he's he's baiting him to get killed. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, Heron does a, a really shitty job, but still succeeds in, uh, at least distracting a few of those. And then like when Mojito walks in, it's just like all parakeets inside that place, yeah. <laughs> like a marching line. And, uh, I, what do they sound like in the English dub? I want to know. Are they like deep voiced or? Well, the King is played Definitely by Dave King. Bautista. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and the other ones are kind of like, yeah, like you know, gruffer voices. Okay. Yeah. In the, in the subs, they had the exact same, like all the same kind of voice. It was that very deep sort of like, come this way. I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> they, a little doofy. Like, yeah, yes. a little, yeah. A little like bro. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> um, they really should have gotten Stallone. Oh, oh man. Stallone would have been great. <laughs> I feel like if they just gotten like all of the eighties muscle heroes to be, oh, this to be different. Awesome. it would have been amazing. Um, I want to go Schwarzenegger back as the king. Yeah. I yeah. want to go back and, and watch now, like when it, when it comes out digital, I want to slow down and look through the parakeet town because there was so much shit going on 
when it like flashed by and you could see them like cooking bread and like hanging out together dancing and like there was a whole town of parakeets doing shit that would just pass real quick yeah we we like quickly find out it's not just like this blacksmith's house it's like there's a whole infestation of parakeets yeah they seem to have taken over the entire fantasy world there's just parakeets on parakeets just they have their own markets they have like this big old tower that they filled up there's like the streets are just packed with them in this like internal dwelling city that's just like bustling with parakeet life and they have a king who is continually petitioning to the granduncle to like you know make the world in a way that is better for the parakeets it's like they've gotten enough political power where they can actually influence what's going on in this in this fantasy world yeah he's he's vying to be like the king of the uh the universe in this place he's kind of like don't don't uh if i remember correctly he's like don't surrender this place to like your heirs like let us the parakeets run it we know what it needs um and that's where the fascism comes in right that's <laughs> yeah where, right uh, <laughs> yeah these parakeets hey, they are just want democracy behind you yeah. know they uh <laughs> they just hey there are more parakeets than there are grand uncles and they should all get an e- equal say in what goes on there. <laughs> <laughs> and by equal say we mean the king tells us yeah yeah uh, they they like they've given all of their equal says to the king <laughs> to the king he gets all of those says yeah we we only get to see the king after um after uh, uh Mahita's mom is uh kidnapped after young her is kidnapped for helping him try to get to his stepmom and like they they had that you whole... can't go in the birthing cave or something i, I don't know what the fuck was going on that's with rule that. number 1 don't go in the birthing cave yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's like demonic papers that spin around in a mobile and they will fucking attack yeah. you they'll mummify you and then they bring her as captive in like a snow white glass case up to and she looks weirdly like snow white and they you know the parakeets bring her up to the grandmaster or whatever granduncle and and uh like a bargaining chip yeah yeah the king parakeet's like you know that he broke the rules they can't go into the birthing cave and he the granduncle's like i know that that's uh, against the rules like what the fuck is going on (laughs) that's obviously the law clearly clearly he fucked up but you know he's my heir and i want him to be my successor yeah i love that he they take they have like this fucking massive, it's like a clock tower's worth of stairs Mm -hmm. that go all the way up to, um, the entrance to the Holy mountain or some shit. Uh, That's what it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) They just walk through like a chamber and they're in a different realm. Um, up into this like golden area full of columns that leads out into a weird Zen garden. Yeah. And like right at the, the base of those steps, the King's about to go up and like all the followers are like, we need to go with you. Like we believe in you King, we should go with you. And he's like, no, only the King should go up there. Mm-hmm. And like when he gets to the top of it, because Mojito's following him, he literally just cuts all of those stairs. Like that entire structure just gets cut down like completely severs access to like the common people below. And uh, I was like, there's some shit here about fucking selfish leaders <laughs> just like saying, nah, you don't belong up here. Like nobody belongs up here, but me, I'm going to fucking tear this shit down. If anybody tries to. Well, certainly um, like he cuts that entire, which would be his return or anyone else's mm-hmm. chance to get up there just because Mojito is following him. Yeah. And then he, after he follows Mojito further on, uh, he's like, oh, I'll fucking stack all these kids blocks and now I'll be the ruler. And then he sucks at it and then he gets pissed and he cuts the whole thing in half and pretty much that's why the universe gets destroyed. So there, <laughs> yeah. there definitely is like a heavy handedness of like he's so intent on 
his power and getting what he wants that he will destroy everything. Yeah, he'll cut off his nose to <laughs> cut off, his Yeah, face. cut off all his people. Fucking birds, right? Just <laughs> yeah. The worst. <laughs> Having observed them for long enough now, yes, they are. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that whole negotiation, like we we get to the, the uncle sequence and like, I thought the grand uncle conversation, that like stacking blocks, as much as I don't understand it, those blocks are made out of like tomb pieces in the one dream yeah there was a certain like in 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 a dream within all of this dream uh when mojito's captured and he's like passed out the grand uncle is like hey here you stack them up and and you can handle this new universe and and create a world that's good and mojito's like yeah those are made out of gravestones like those aren't good and the uncle's like oh yeah see you're good you know good from bad so that's why you can do it and then later he actually goes to the uncle, I guess actually goes to the uncle, uh, who yeah. again gives him the whole spiel about the blocks and creating a good universe and all that. And then says, you know, good, bad things are kind of creeping in. But he's like, here's the last few good stones. So it seems like a lot of them have been corrupted and they walk over the path of like a bunch of them that have been cast aside. So there's only like so much that's good, so little that's good that you can use to build this, quote, perfect world. That we've seen is not, and yeah. I guess the grand uncle is like old and failing, but I think like he just thinks he's made something that's like perfect and great, um, but he's also really shitty at it. Yeah, he's become like so intent on keeping um, any kind of balance in the world that he's established that he's unwilling and uncompromising to destroy it in the face of it being actually like malevolent and evil and like swelling with fascism below uh, propagated by those parakeet people. Um, and like that, yeah, that, that was really interesting to me. And I thought that because it's also like those blocks become the motif of, I think, carrying like the goodness, like the change that you go through when you experience these traumas, um, as like Mojito, once he exits that world, he pockets one of those, which like the heron kind of scolds him for doing. And is like, you should, you should forget everything you saw. Like you never, you were never there. None of these things ever happened. Um, and don't take anything except me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I get me, to keep Jenny. going for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and he's like, you didn't take anything. Right. And he was like, uh, I just took a few things. I took this like old Mithroshka doll that turns into an old woman immediately. And I took this like little, uh, piece from the block set. And it's like that totem of, of like the good that he's going to carry forward after like the war is over and, what he's going to go do with it, like what he will do with his life. There you go. There's the title coming back to him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dixon, what did you think about the block stack? Did you have your own interpretation for it? Did that seem like it lines up or? Yeah, no, basically along those lines, I, I, it felt like to me that Miyazaki was kind of talking about himself as a filmmaker, as the grand uncle and like, it's the same 13 blocks, right? That he, every three days he would have to rebuild into a different thing and try to keep it balanced for three days. Mm. And it feels like, like a lot of his movies and I've seen four of his movies, so I'm not an, an expert on his filmography, but it feels like in the ones that I have seen that he is playing on a lot of similar themes and taking, reusing different filmmaking techniques in, in maybe slightly different way. And he, he's kind of rebuilding something new with the same blocks every time that he's making a movie, right? And like, he feels like 
at this point that he can't keep doing that anymore and he needs to find somebody else to take on the the torch of making really great animated films for adults and kids alike that can have commentary about war and peace and uh, coming of age and you know different things like that and um you know it feels like a director at the end of his career kind of commenting on his escaping abilities and just hoping that somebody else can live up to the legacy that he's left behind which on the one hand is kind of nice and on the other hand is like well that seems kind of cocky that you <laughs> think that like you know only like the parakeets can't do this only like my ordained like successor can you know maybe come in and and figure this out and and be able to take up the mantle but it also doesn't feel like he is pushing like he, he that character in the movie is like to the boy yes you need to do this and take this over but it doesn't feel like the movie is pushing the boy to do that right like it's kind of leaving him with his own choices to make and to figure out how he wants to spend his time and live his life going forward. And um, I've, I read a little bit this week about Miyazaki, you know, kind of sacrificing some of his relationships with his family in order to make his movies to the degree that he wanted to. And it feels like there's maybe some commentary there with, you know, his, the granduncle abandoning his family, running away in this tower and just creating fantasy worlds for the bulk of his life. I was going to say something really mean. Oh, uh, yeah, we can cut this if we want to. But I was, yeah, I was going to say that's why he made him a granduncle and not his father. <laughs> so it would be extra. He was like, I don't believe my son could do this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think from that perspective, it, it makes sense. I think that there's also so like this is what kind of the most beautiful part about the movie is that we can like have those dual interpretations and like they both work in a way where you're thinking about the grand uncle from the perspective of being um, a symbol for Miyazaki, like a stand in avatar sort of for him. And at the same time, have him represent an ideal uh, as well as um, the, the parakeet King uh, where like the parakeet King and the grand uncle are both, in a way misguided they they both believe one of them believes in power to to maintain order and is trying to like just use his power for anything to to solve any possible problem he's just doing that parakeet king just slices everything in front of him um and then the grand uncle believes in like a specific kind of balance like he's cast aside all these other stones he has preordained that there is this stack that could work this way and then you have the third actor in this, which is Mojito, who like Mojito just like stands there and observes both of them. He sees like the arrogance of the parakeet king and he sees this like it's not delusion, but it is like a particular idealism applied by the granduncle who's like, it can just be my bloodline. My bloodline's the only one. But like according to all the different legends, that place like fell to earth that was something completely foreign and extraterrestrial that hit it's not that it chose him it's that he chose to go into it and it's kind of that like when an idea hits you or like uh, uh, mm -hmm. an ideal hits you and you decide i'm going to believe in this full force like a hundred percent that's going to be real for me um and like that can bring you to to like different kinds of ruin and having mojito see that and carry it with him as a block when he leaves that world um, being that kind of like, I guess something impacted Miyazaki and like, it all kind of like can, it can like work together and kind of show you, uh, yeah, he was that little boy. And he's also that, that grand uncle. He's like, 
he could be all of these characters sort of learning in mm-hmm. a different way. I don't know about the Parrot King. Parrot King seems pretty, you know, uh, pretty <laughs> pretty cut and dry there for me. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just fucking, I like that. I like that whole last sequence of them sitting at the table talking about it. Yeah. Parrot King, like, yeah. trying to be stealthy in the background. <laughs> I think that's the part that I am going to have to go back and unpack a few times because I think that's where a lot of the the themes kind of crux on that conversation um it's interesting that miyazaki puts himself in the boy in mojito his background his growing up the coming to age and seemingly this mojito potentially getting some inspiration from this the same way that you know miyazaki growing up with like tezuka and then wanting Mm -hmm. to become an artist himself um but obviously not the same artist or the same style, like right going and doing his own thing and his own you know ruminate ruminations on the yeah. world um and then the older one i agree there's like there's miyazaki in there too of this person who's trying to hold all this thing together and create something perfect but i feel like the character doesn't see the things that aren't good in his universe mm-hmm. he thinks he's cre- created this great thing and everything and he's holding it together but he's missing these small corners of it that aren't working well or maybe he's brought in the bad influence himself um which then it's interesting and miyazaki the creator is creating that character acknowledging that he himself hasn't done absolute perfect or the best that he could have done Mm -hmm. um or acknowledging that his things aren't really truly perfect um and wanting other people to take up the you know the mantle but also i think the end of the movie kind of being like not necessarily that you can't but also like you don't have to yeah like Mm -hmm. that it's okay that mihito turns away from it because mihito does accept a new life and move forward um and also that like i do think one really key point is that like good and bad in the world that he's in some ways running from all of it i i do wonder why the stepmom got pulled in. That's also something I haven't like spent enough time thinking about because I've been captured by all these other things. But like why she went in there is not entirely clear or why the stone wanted her to come in there or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that wasn't 100% clear either. Um, She's also dealing with her sister's death. And like, I don't know if, you know, is this a marriage of love or a marriage of convenience or a marriage of obligation? Like, is this right. a cultural thing where, like, you should marry your brother-in-law because your sister Keep died? The family's and... wealth and strength. Yeah. 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 Like, I imagine she's going through a lot of shit. And then, yeah, she's wanting to be a, a mother to Mihito, but doesn't immediately get accepted by him. And she's not been a mother yet, so she doesn't really know. <laughs> yeah. Like, how does this work? What do, what do I do with this? Um, I, oh, that was one thing I want to see in the Japanese version that when she sits down with him the first time she meets Mihito and she's like, I'm your new mother now. Mm-hmm. And like a way that I was like, wow, that's like the wrong first thing to say <laughs> to yeah. someone. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, ah, what terminology did she use? Because in English, you're just like mom, mother, like all it just has one sort of meaning to either you're like stepmother and mother are a separated thing. But if you just say mother, it has like a certain power to it. I was like in Japanese, there's like three ish different yeah. ways to say mom. And I'm like, what, which word did she use? Holds a whole lot of weight. Mm. Yeah. I think she used, um, Okasan. 
Is that Okasa? What it is? Okasa? Yeah, I was wondering if yeah. she, she say haha or did she say Okasa? I think she says Okasa. I think she says it's a very it's a more formal. So then that that's a formal? little bit yeah that's a little bit more like yeah kind of like a new mother, but not necessarily your mother in you know the informal. Like I am taking on the motherly responsibility. Yeah, so yeah. it's like it's yeah. like between there is like another way that's even more formal. If she had said that, then I would have been like she's clearly just saying like. A mother figure, but yeah, she's kind of meeting the middle ground there. Um, so yeah, so like this point of accepting the world and everything that's like good and bad in it, that I think Mahito stepping away and him, him and his mom knowing they're going back to a painful world instead of a world that they could shape to be whatever they want it to be. And his mother has the power over the fire in this world. She's living in like a beautiful little college cottage with all these, you know, flowers and all this stuff outside and, you know, mm-hmm. seemingly can do what she wants, travel where she wants, teleport, like whatever, um, has his abilities, but she's willing to go back to a place she knows she's going to burn up and die. And he knows he's going back to a world that's marred by war and pain. Um, and the granduncle seemingly is hiding from that, right? He's not going back he thinks he can just stay here and keep everything together yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it kind of has that like it's like the wind rises uh has that they repeated a few times the wind rises we must live it's that sort of like you know the occasion is there like there's the the challenge is here like we need to rise to it we can't like shy away from it and living in that wonderland like is not good for the rest of the world that you lived in before. Like this can't just be your new home. Otherwise it's very isolated and it's very selfish. Um, why wouldn't you take back? I also really like that when the parakeets leave, we talked about that they become like regular parakeets and they fly into the world. And I think that there's something in that too, which is like, not just that they like go from having the sentience and being able to like think and like all this other stuff, but just that, there's like this magic that's able to escape from that world and bleed into ours. And I really fucking love that. Like, I, I don't think that I've seen another movie that I can think of where like the magic genuinely has been witnessed by other people in the world that are grounded already. Like the dad was like, he turned into parakeets at one point because he, he thinks he sees him for a second and then he sees parakeets. And like, it's just one of those things where he's able to carry the blocks back too. And it's, I feel like it's this, um, kind of like reaching into that imagination like in the human the subconscious there it's like what david lynch fucking loves is like that there are things in this world that we can't comprehend how beautiful they can be or like how fucking wonderful they are until we see them through a different lens or we see them become something different and uh i thought that like the parakeets kind of embodied that of like they're these fucking monsters in another world and here they're like these beautiful flighted birds and sure they shit on everything but like uh, even that's kind of like funny and delightful. Like all the characters are amused mm. by it, <laughs> which I, I fucking loved. I thought it was hilarious that every character was like parakeets and they're just all fucking drenched in shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking about the parakeets, uh, in the analogy of like war and, and peace and thinking about like, okay, it's, it's world war two in Japan. Like, you know, the, and the parakeets in the fantasy world are shown as these fascist soldier type characters right that are mm-hmm. overly masculine that are like just beefy and regimented and and slow and and kind of just acting like like soldiers would act 
And then when they escape into the real world, they're like returned to like these small, colorful, playful parakeets. And I wonder if it's a commentary about like, you know, how a war environment can transform somebody into something else entirely, right? Where, you know, a fun, playful parakeet turns into a ruthless monster and then potentially back again uh i would argue that maybe they, they don't turn back that necessarily that easily but um i, I wonder with the war tie-in if there's something there as well parakeets can still be dicks like that doesn't you know, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah they absolutely. still bite you if they want to and <laughs> they have talons they have really yeah. fucking sharp beaks they could do territorial things they fucking they fight over land i guess that's also a thing that like, oh makes just them. like us yeah there it is um <laughs> But yeah, like, yeah, that might, that reminds me of Howl's Moving Castle with like the, they turn into bird people whenever they go fight in Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, yeah. Like when they come back, they turn back into regular humans. So it's like, I don't know what Miyazaki is drawn to with that, but maybe maybe nothing, but flight. Yeah. And particularly, I was going to say that's one other topic for us to talk about, but yeah. Yeah. um, The um, Pelicans also come out, right? And they're seen as sort of an evil force. We see them you know, through the, the the characters in the other world's eyes as sort of this evil force eating this the spirits or whatever, but then they just come out and get to be pelicans, right, and are accepted as pelicans again. Yeah, absolutely. They waddle all around and whatever. Um, but yeah, Miyazaki is a, obsessed with flight, right? Like, he has, mm-hmm. so, almost always has planes, flying machines of some kind. Several stories just directly deal with flight. The Wind Rises, Porco Rosso. Are like mm-hmm. built around f- planes as the, the like the whole thing, um, and then yeah, to have here the birds and you know the 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 thoughts on like flight and potentially freedom, like as flight as this ability to to go wherever, do whatever, like not be not have to be grounded. Um, kind of interesting that the parakeets mostly walk around. We do see them fly, but when they're in the other world, they're they tend to be more on the ground doing regular things. Mm-hmm. They could easily just fly to the top, but they walk all the way up all those steps. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like they do chase him by flying a couple times. It's not fully that they don't fly at all, but. Yeah. There are characters in several other movies too, that just turn into Miyazaki films that just turn into birds. Like, yeah. And, and take flight. So that's an interesting motif that I've never considered. Like I knew about the plane stuff, like Miyazaki just, it's pretty obvious from his designs. He just fucking loves making weird planes and things that can fly. But, uh, yeah, I never really thought too much about the bird motifs. And yeah. his dad, his dad worked in a factory making canopies for Mitsubishi zeros, which is what the dad here does. So it's like, he has always had a history with, <laughs> with airplanes and obsession with the mechanics of them. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I wanted to mention, I read this really fascinating article on IndieWire about the English dub. And, you know, we talked a little bit about it. But um, so G-Kids did the the English dub for this movie. And I think this was the first Miyazaki movie that they have dubbed. And in the past, Disney was doing a lot of the the dubs. And they, they talked a lot about how, like, the care that G-Kids went into the casting. And Ghibli had specific requests in the casting that I thought was interesting where they like for certain roles they're like we want whoever dubbed this role in this previous movie they should do this voice (laughs) because that's what we did in the japanese version so like they got christian bale like the guy who did howl we wanted to come back and do the dad and it was like willem dafoe did some voice in a previous film and came back to do the uh the pelican Pelican. and there there are a few voices like that 
they requested to to come back specifically for this movie and then um the the g kids studio head said he like saw the japanese version he was like heron danny devito done great easy and they were like no actually in japan we cast like some 30 year old hot guy to be the heron and we want you to do that in your movie as well and so they were like fuck what do we do and then they ended up talking to robert pattinson and and got him to do this and it's 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 i guess they wanted that subversion where the voice is is maybe not matching the the character or the uh, you know, the person who's doing it is not who you would expect. Like the voice is perfect that he does for, for the Heron. And it is this weird gravelly thing that does not sound like Robert Pattinson at all. But I thought that was really interesting to see the, that Ghibli had specific requests on how they wanted it dubbed and, and G kids adhered to that really well. And, and I thought created a, a really great dub that, that, um, you know, worked really well for yeah. the movie. So G kids has done most of the Ghibli dubs Disney, recently, but I don't think they've done any Miyazaki films yet. They had, they did all the way back to like castle in the sky. So they, they actually have been doing it. So Disney's been distributing oh, okay. them for the most part. And then G kids now is distributing them as well. But G kids do, did do the dubs gotcha, traditionally, okay. but G kids was taking their direction from Disney and the older mm-hmm. ones, which is what they ah, did I some see. of the casting. And now they work directly with them. G kids has done the dubbing for like, all of the good, <laughs> I would say, like really high quality anime that has come out, um, for the most part. So, like a, a lot of things that we we talked about recently, um, but like Mirai, The Night Is Short, Walk On Girl, mm-hmm. um, the Tokyo Godfathers. Like we, I think we mentioned that oh, like yeah. back in the day. Like they've done a bunch of dubs for pretty much what should be the like award winning level anime that have come through. Um, and they've gotten better at it. I think they did do some like stunt casting back in the day, but I feel like they've gotten a lot better at mm. it as the whole industry has gotten better at understanding like what a dub should be. Yeah. I will say that Miyazaki is very particular about a lot of things and often a dick about it um, <laughs> because he has a vision and then he'll tell someone like, go do something and then they'll come back and he'd be like, no, that's not what I wanted. But he gave them the freedom to do it and then tells them that they're wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that he would be like still have his fingers kind of in it. Um, as they've gotten more power, Ghibli has given much more direction um, as time has gone on to how they want the subbing or dubbing to go. In the early ones, it was really like wide open because that's just the way the contracts were and you were lucky to get it into America. But I think they know now they can, especially post Spirited Away that they can throw their weight around. I don't know. Like, yeah, it depends. I, I I remember some of the other dubs have been, and I don't know if they're pre-Spirited Away, but I'm pretty sure Spirited Away broke the dam, didn't it? Or was there something before? That was the really the, like, big, so to speak, hit. Um, it, not to this level. I want to talk about that later. But yeah. um, it still didn't make a ton of money, but it made a whole lot more money than I think they thought it was going to, and it clearly made a very big American audience. It, it may be up until this, the most like recognizable property and most likely to have like been viewed when it was released of mm-hmm. Miyazaki film. So I think it really did kind of like open the door. It got nominated. It kind of got a lot of attention for that too. Right. It really did start to open the door for all this. Um, House Moving Castle would be after that. And G kids did do the dub. And I do think that Calcifer is a clearly different character. 
So I do think mm-hmm. that there were times where they chose like a very different direction and got away with it. Um, but it is interesting that they really put their hands more. I think that like we haven't set it out, but it's been around like the bubble around all of this. This is Miyazaki's last film. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's no way. I know he said it like <laughs> back He's retired, at, what, eight times. Now yeah, or something? yeah. Going yeah. back like what Mononoke was supposed to be. He said he was going to retire after that. And that was 1997. <laughs> he tries to get out, but he keeps pulling himself yeah, back in. Yeah. So he's been saying he's going to retire since 1997. Um, this is his last tour. But I think now that Ghibli has been sold and he's 82, yeah. I think I think he is really done. And I think that this movie really is where he's like, all right, I'm giving it everything. Like, I'm putting it all out there. Like I'm going through process all the things that I want. He's always talked about doing a how do you how do how do you live adaptation, which he fucking didn't, which is good. But he got it out. And he like used it slightly. Um, so I really do think this was him going out on like that final bang. And I do think there are a lot of like particulars where he really wanted this to be like the right thing and his thing. And I think from this side, I can see where G Kids is like, tell us what to do. Like this is your yeah. thing. You're gonna go out big. Yeah. We want this to be big. We want to promote it mostly the same way you did uh it, it the rumor had been going around that he was the one that said no trailers uh in the japanese promotion uh, but that's not the case actually ghibli wanted it to be that way he kind of was ambivalent to it but was like fine um, but the studio was like we know we have the last big thing about it it's a very mysterious the way that it works like it'd be awesome for audiences to go in we know they're gonna buy tickets like they weren't concerned yeah. about yeah. this selling in japan so they they purposely kind of kept it under wraps. Here in the States, they started releasing trailers, but your chances of they're even pretty seeing vague, those, though. and they're vague. I don't even know yeah. how you would see them unless you seek them out because of the so, way that... Yeah. yeah that, I that, saw that a trailer promoted. once or twice in a theater, um, yeah. but it was like a pretty... It was almost like a teaser. They and you had to have been much. at an art house movie or something. There's no yeah. way that you like, were about just to like, see There's Fast a boy. X. There's a hair. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Miyazaki. And then you're done. They fuck. Yeah. <laughs> or do they? <laughs> Come see. <laughs> the sexual tension is palpable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a question, important question, because we're talking about the dub. We're talking about, um, the, you know, the G kids and the love that they put into this. Um, is there that same thing that I've talked about hating before during Howl's Moving Castle? Because I feel like they've been better about it. They don't add dialogue anymore. No, there's no they like don't do any filler. There's stuff no ADR type on. shit in the background at all. No. Okay, good. Yeah, I didn't notice anything. Like yeah, that. this has the right level of like quietness and stillness that it should. Yes, in a like Howl's Moving Castle way, uh-huh. when they cut to that parakeet town, there would have been a fucking chatter of parakeets saying <laughs> shit to oh, each yeah. other. There was not. No. <laughs> good. I'm I'm glad. It's it's relieving to hear that uh, they kind of bucked that for this. Yeah, thinking back, Castle in the Sky has that too and kind of annoys me, and I think Porco Rosso. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, Castle in the Sky definitely has it, and I can see it every time I watch it, or like I can hear it every time I watch it, and it's annoying. Yeah, shit. So, yeah, one, one other thing that I wanted to discuss, because I was having this thought uh, just as a few things were coming together. I was at a, a friend's get-together uh, earlier in the week before I'd gone to see the movie. They were bemoaning the fact that our local mall has gone to shit. Like everyone's local mall, and surprisingly, yeah. people go to our local mall, unlike other you malls. You have a mall, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but as they described it, and rightly so, uh, our local mall is only attractive to teenagers who are into anime uh, because that no. is like 
half the stores <laughs> honestly mm. at this point so are... they had like 85 percent of the screens showing boy and the heron uh it had a decent all. yeah it had a decent number of showings and as i've said before it's like the only times i go to the theater and see other people in the theater with me is usually for the anime things we go see um and reasonably like other high nerdy things like mario brothers um so i and i was going through that mall later buying anime shit and i was really sitting there tr- trying to understand how I still feel like anime hasn't really broken in the box office like I think it ought to, that I'm just like, I don't think the American distributors really see that as an opportunity yet, and I am not quite sure why. Um, Mm. This movie did end up being the number one for the weekend, Uh, but this is a little bit of a quieter time anyway, and like, you know, it's not up against you know, and a bunch of other stuff or summer blockbusters or whatever, but it Dune didn't end part up getting two that. didn't happen. You know, yeah. they, they been, there's no star Wars movie this year. They, they benefited a little bit from right. A little bit quiet, quieter a time. quiet weekend. Yeah. For December. Yeah. We did have the golden globe nominations come out and both this and Suzume from earlier in the year are nominated. The first time we've had two anime nominated for the golden globe. I suspect both will be nominated for the Academy award. I don't see why not. Um, they are both up there. Um, this is definitely and a lot better than Susan May, but I think this good. is a lot better. But yeah. that one's that one's up there. It's worth it too. It's better than Teenage Mutant mm-hmm. Ninja Turtle, right? So I was like, usually, it, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it's kind of better mm-hmm. than almost all the shit that Disney has. But Elemental and Wish will get in there too for whatever fucking reason. But um, <laughs> corruption, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last year, I had mentioned uh, Dragon Ball Super Colon's superhero. Uh, that also <laughs> was number one at the box office the weekend that it came out. Uh, and yeah, it, was it was barely promoted and, and distributed uh, widely even. Uh, the last time before Dragon Ball Superhero that a anime was number one in its weekend was 1992 when Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back or whatever the fuck it that was called. That wasn't 92. No, that was 97. Did I say 90? No, it was 99, 99. whatever number yeah. I said. Yeah. I have this new Maria. I can't do I numbers. remember I was, a, I was a... Pokemon playing child. I saw the shit out of that movie. Yes. Yeah. So did a lot of people. So it did it did really well. It's still like they stripped out all the dark shit from it for the Western yeah. audience. I still think it's like the number one or number two box office for anime in the States. It, it's still up there. And that yeah, so Gotta it was nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. So since the turn of the century, we we've only had two. And they've been recent, and we have two that are now nominated simultaneously. We've had two come out in a year. And, it, and, and yeah, I was talking to other people, like if people are like, oh, Ghibli, it'll never be that again. I'm like, there's already other studios that are putting out stuff that that's quality. It's, it mm-hmm. may not be the Ghibli studio anymore, but I'm like, something like Suzume is hitting into that range in a way that many other things are not. So I'm not too concerned about it following up. But I, I'm just like at a loss of like, how is someone not see the opportunity they have as a distributor to get a free fucking movie? <laughs> that somebody else has made and put all the money into somewhere else and already vetted before you even translated vetted that it makes money that you can bring to the states and all you have to do is make some ads and run them in the right places and you're good to go and i'm like yeah. barnes and noble is only fucking alive because they mm-hmm. have manga in the store it's the only reason they still have a physical store and that the- How dare you shit on the Criterion Collection <laughs> like that? <laughs> I don't so, think yeah. the teens are clamoring for the Criterion Collection. No, not <laughs> Shut enough. Shut up, John. 
<laughs> I gave my nephew a Barnes and Noble gift card for his birthday last year, and he's like, "Oh, thanks." What's Barnes and Noble? And his friend turned to him and he goes, "They have Pokemon stuff." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like exactly. sure that yeah, just run with that. Dude, yeah. they have Ozu. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what it's exactly. I'm like, I'm wondering when it will finally, what will be the thing to finally break through. It's kind of interesting that this isn't, it still isn't the thing that people are going to be like, wow, that was such a big hit. And this is not, this is going to be shadowed by, you know, Barbie Heimer. And there are plenty of other things this year that were big hits that will still stick around culturally. But even looking back, I'm like, Spirited Away kind of broke through a little bit, like cracked a little. Um, and you know, people went back and watched other properties and those are marketable here now, but that's the only one that like actually released to a U.S. audience and picked up an audience as it went. Yeah. I'm, I'm honestly kind of surprised that Disney hasn't just tried to steal the, the entire style or any kind of like semblance of anime and repackage it and be like, it's a Disney movie because I feel like maybe this is just the, the, uh, the Disney dollars talking. Um, but like, I feel like that would get like, oh, it's yeah, that's going to be in the Academy Awards. Like just like fucking elemental or like, yeah. whatever else. Like, and it's, it's interesting because you're like, uh, Avatar, not Avatar, Avatar, the last airbender Avatar, like totally oh, just oh, fucking cops. It just cops <laughs> the style. Right. And that yeah. was very successful. Yeah. And Nickelodeon keeps trying to bring it back in various ways to mark it off. But that was a very successful steal. Uh, Arcane. That came mm-hmm. out, Castlevania, Castlevania's Moorish anime. Like there are things that are on Netflix, like TV shows, American shows, cartoons that are totally just stealing the style and fucking raking it in because they stole yep. the style. Like f- fucking what was the like spy girls thing or whatever back in the day? I don't know if you guys remember that thing. It was just no, like a shitty Canadian thing about like three girls that were spies and it made it's way totally too much spies. Totally spies. Yeah, oh, see, okay. John knows. Yeah. <laughs> I got <myself>. you. <laughs> you son of a bitch you tricked me. <laughs> but look, uh, that is awful. It was awful, but because it had the aesthetic and the style, it made money. Like yeah. y- it was able to pull it off. Yeah. Man, that's an interesting uh yeah, consideration, right? I have no idea when that dam's going to break. Like I I felt like it's slowly been creeping in and I there's some kind of has. Like it, it seems like Gen Z and younger are just like very into Japanese culture and and like you know the the like the reason that the boy and the heron did so well is not because of millennials or Gen Xers or boomers buying tickets right it's because of kids going to see it and it it, it feels like the culture is moving more in that direction I don't I don't know do do you guys uh, disagree with that I think it's moving that way I just think it's interesting that no one has tried to market to the degree of there's a financial Super Mario or resistance to like right yeah like capitalize and, and on it. Yeah. Mario honestly is a Japanese property. It's a video mm-hmm. game property. It took a long time for video game properties to finally get some kind of due and recognition. Like that actually honestly has only been a recent thing. Like in movies, you mean? Yeah, to to movies or television shows to actually like hit big ish certainly for movies for tv shows maybe in the 90s we really were hitting that because like the mario show back in the day was a pretty big the cartoon deal when we were kids yeah but like pokemon hit big and pokemon is the biggest property period in the world for Mm. like making money across all the different categories of shit that That they sell prints like yeah it just makes money and clearly like when i you know i mentioned 1999 like they put out a movie 
and Detective Pikachu did really well as well. Now that's like, again, that and the Super Mario are kind of like this taking something and putting it through a lens here in the States. They're not directly just like, hey, here's an anime, boom, throw it in the theaters and I make a bunch of money. Uh, and the Japanese, that's the other part too, where I'm like, they still operate the way they've always operated, which is like, they care about the Japanese market. Like then that's the mm. end of the day. Like they do yeah. that with video games. They do that with anime and manga. They're just like, what they just concentrate on the, their audience and they don't really give a shit. If someone wants to adapt it in another language or sure, have fun with it, like I'm not going to help you out with it or anything, which is weird to me. Cause I'm like, you could be the company that makes this shit. And why not have a worldwide distribution the way that I'm like, Disney, that's what they do. They're just like, right, I'll make money in China. I don't care. The wish sucks. Fucking Chinese will watch it. <laughs> right. I'll yeah. remove the parts that are uncomfortable and the Chinese will watch it and I'll make a bunch of money. It doesn't matter how terrible it is. <laughs> yeah. Data analytics decisions and all the other shit that will influence that. Um, yeah. I think part of it is just the hold that American studios have over like American, both American theater chains and streaming services, right? Like to where they're going to promote their own stuff over anything else. And like, there's going to be other stuff will infiltrate it and get eyes on it, but like, it's not going to be something that they're actively pushing to that same degree. Yeah. I mean, Netflix is really the only exclusion to that. I mean, obviously there's like mm. Crunchyroll and High Dive. There are platforms that are specifically built around it and those deals, but weirdly like netflix is funding and actually funding anime like they're having, they're funding things that are anime adjacent but they right. actually like have funded anime movies to be made in japan so that they can put them on netflix and they can distribute them around the world so I'm like netflix gets it but netflix is in an interesting position where i feel like they understand a lot about the current world and what the realities are of where movies are and what people will watch mm -hmm. that i feel like the old studios still are just like yeah, Stuck whereas like Disney way. Plus is just a place for Disney Always to dump to their Disney shit. shit. Yeah. yeah, Max is just a place for Warner Brothers to dump their shit. You know, like they all have their own streaming service that they just prioritize their own stuff. Their and stuff, it's like, and I don't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I'm all, it's weird to me too because I'm like, well, why not put it on there? Like even their own shit that they don't put on there. I'm like, you have it. Why not put it on there? Like, <laughs> yeah. so weirdly. I, I think some of it's just like, it's just a bunch of old white dudes that run the studios, right? Like, they don't know what the fuck anime is. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like they're not, um, they're just thinking like, oh, who's the, the hot name that we can, you know, put on a stupid Marvel movie and make a shitty, you know, kneecap a good director and have them put out a shitty movie for us. Like that's, that's the extent that their creativity goes to, you know? That's why any like, uh, fucking animated trailer in the u.s uh flashes there's always a guaranteed screen of every name of every fucking hollywood star that will be in this movie it's like chris pratt and charlie day and anya taylor joy and like we got all these people but can they fucking voice act can they actually do what's required for an animated feature mm. or are we just obsessed with the cult of celebrity in america and like Oh, I mean, fuck it. Chris Pratt's in it. I guess it's got to be good because Chris Pratt. That's not me talking, by the way. That's <laughs> to distance myself from that statement. Uh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I did like Jack Black in that movie, but yes, I did. other than yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He gave it his all. He went for <laughs> mm -hmm. it. I was, yeah. I was happy with it. But well, yeah. I mean, it, interestingly enough, like because we started talking about this because of the dub, you could do that with this movie. You could just fucking list off. Yeah. Mm hmm. But they didn't. Yeah. So wanted to, but <laughs> Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Florence Pugh, like we got them all. They're all here. 
Yeah. Remember yeah, Ron Batman? He was Batman. The yeah. Batman. So, so was Christian Bale. We got two Batmans. Yeah, we got two movie. Batmans in this. <laughs> we, we could have had Danny DeVito. We could have had a penguin, but you know, yeah. they don't want to build a Batman film. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is there anything else, Ryan? I, I know you're railing yeah, against that was Hollywood. My, yeah, that was my dad. Your open letter to the executives uh, <laughs> with their cigars. <laughs> I, I would say that, Ryan, I feel like the uh, anime has won. Like, it's just, you know, we're maybe not seeing it in, like, theatrically yet to where it will yeah. go. But I think the battle has been won and it will, it, you know, it, it will become much more common sooner rather than later because american studios just suck at making animated movies right now and there's just no there's very little creativity involved occasionally you get a a toy story sequel or a spider-verse movie that is really good and interesting but other than that it's like it's slim pickings out there dude it's just so like they're gonna have to bring in kids movies from other places because yeah they're just so bad it really feels like this is the time like disney really fucking dumpster fired it this year across mm-hmm. the board like this was a bad year for disney yeah uh, it was <laughs> it, it is hard that to indiana understand. jones movie dear lord yeah uh, they fucking terrible yeah they lost so much money i this bet year they wish they could get decisions. the dial of destiny yeah and they're yeah, like their yeah their time. animated movies the way they tried to sell those animated movies now i will say uh Whatever the fuck this migration movie is, it looks like dog shit. <laughs> oh my god, it's terrible. I'm glad we you know, if there's anything that can unite a nation, it's not going to see migration. <laughs> that that's an illumination movie, right? Yes, but I, I'm just like I'm an, pretty sure Illumination has never made a good movie. You know what like, I bet? That movie is that, probably like probably if it's 90 minute runtime it's 88 minutes of the minions intro sequence right right yeah, right. yeah. Uh-huh. they have some <laughs> yeah, other minion like bit in front of it too, all those yeah. awful earplug movies and then you got the fucking super mario brothers and all this shit it's like they, they have not actually made a good movie ever but they fucking print money at that place so i'm yeah. sure it'll do well because all their other terrible movies do yeah really they know well, they've got but, something going on but i think that's yeah. where it's like you have that chance right now where disney is on the down and I think that, you know, if you look at their studio and they're going to try to scramble to figure out what they needed to do to get good, they're not going to really put it into the animation yet. No. Uh, and yeah, you have this chance where I'm like a follow up from some of these other studios that I feel like are challenging. And like if your name came out now and got marketed, I think that would have like busted the door open and been like fuck disney like this is the thing that people are pouring in to go see which Mm. is what happened in other countries (laughs) when your name came out just not the states oh your name was great yeah Yeah, uh, it was great and it was huge across the world just Mm -hmm. not the states yeah (laughs) yeah yeah because it's a fucking monopoly over here yeah Uh, (laughs) it is what it is but uh i i will say this is just, we can cut this if we want to, but when I worked at a movie theater, um, I would constantly hear from the owner of that theater how Disney would fucking lean on him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet. to mm-hmm. hold certain movies. You're going to hold this for a set number of weeks. You're going to hold this for however fucking long we tell you to. And then if you're good, we will give you this other movie that's guaranteed to give you the fucking money your business needs to survive. And like, as like a 17 year old, I was like, wow, this is a company that I was enamored with in my childhood and they do this shit. 
to like a local family business that's trying to just spread the word of cinema. <laughs> Fuck these guys. You're like, telling me that a company that was founded by a bona fide Nazi <laughs> is enforcing <laughs> draconian rules upon family businesses? Hey, don't speak ill of him. He's still frozen. <laughs> don't, any moment. don't speak ill of the living. <laughs> the undead. Uh, yeah. yeah. They're the Microsoft of movie making. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, Ryan, why don't you take us home? Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, Real quick, let's, before, let's before we like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hold on. But before we finish this, I'm curious to hear, John, you mentioned this a little bit at the at the top but i'm curious to hear where this falls for you guys in oh yeah that's a good Miyazaki yeah. rankings yeah uh for me i've only seen four of his films and this is probably solidly number two for me with the wind rises as number one then the boy in the hair and then spirited away then Howl's moving castle all of which i liked they're all good but um that's probably where this falls for me. i thought this was this was really good i gave it an, a four and a half on on letterbox that was pretty solid the wind rises to me felt uh more personal and more um just kind of intimate and interesting but um i i thought this was kind of close to to getting there yeah i would say for me if i was talking about castle in the skies is my number one i fucking love that movie um princess mononoke is my number two maybe at the beginning i i mistakenly said princess mononoke was my one or was like right above this or something but i just to set the record straight castle in the sky is still my number one love it Princess Mononoke, number two. This, number three. I would say Wind Rises after and then Spirited Away, which, like, to me, it's all really hard to rank them in that stacked order because mm-hmm. I just love each of them so fucking much. But push comes to shove, that's how I would have to order it. And, and everything else. We know that Ponyo is last for you. Ponyo <laughs> is last for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ponyo is pretty far down there. Yeah, um, I just hear that theme song and it goes lower each time. <laughs> I just don't need it in my life. It's the baby shark of Japan. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ryan, you I, sounded offended. <laughs> it's pretty far down there. I don't know that it's yeah, quite yeah. baby shark level. It, it's uh, it's probably Ponyo, Ponyo, his worst. It little probably fishy in the worst. sea is the yes. lyrics of that song, and that's all that that song is. Yes, so. it's probably his worst. It has the, it like tries to do the Totoro theme song thing, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, um, yeah. I to me, Mononoke is the top. And I and I do feel like I've gained more appreciation the more I've watched certain movies. So certain things that I really had liked early, there are other ones I go back to that I was like, ah, it was ambivalent to, but kind of have grown on me. So it, it has changed. Um, and to that, I'm like, I only have seen The Wind Rises once, and I liked it, but I really think I need to see it again. I just haven't had the chance to. But I, I think yeah. that that's one where like I, I think it's up there. It just isn't quite to me but i haven't seen it enough to digest it fully yet and i feel the same way the boy in the hair i do think that this is going to be very much up there but i do also need to digest it some more but i still so think even after like that's all done four. do what you're talking like top three or four then yeah it's still going to be i think both of those are definitely yeah. up there like to me mononoke is one i actually still like uh since we're not talking ghibli specifically we're talking miyazaki nausicaa valley of the wind is also way up there um and like, yeah, C- Castle in the Sky is up there. I feel like Howl's, I like Howl's, but it's broken to mm-hmm. the point that I've started putting Kiki's Delivery Service higher. The more I watch it, the more I like, I appreciate the like coming of age story that it is. 
But I'm like, yeah, to me, I'm like, it's Mononoke, Nausicaa, and then it probably is Boy in the Heron of just like what I have recently like watched and been like, I need to watch this. I like it. It has depth. It has all these things going for it. Those three and even seeing when rises like once it sticks with me, the like mm-hmm. how you walk away from that movie feeling about and like, yeah, the the like idea of having to get back up and the wind rising after the things happen to you is really strong as well. And all three of those, I'm like those top three just have such messages and so many layers to them. Spirit mm-hmm. Away is enjoyable. And that's like the most like, here you go. Anyone can go watch this and have a good time. One, yeah, yeah like, and it doesn't have like Howl's Moving Castle. Anybody could watch and have a good time, but it has some like elements that need to be fixed. Where Spirit Away, there's not really anything that needs to be fixed. It's very approachable, so it's a very good like number five, like right there. That like it's the tail end of the the top ones. I, Ponyo yeah. is like the worst. You're right, John. Like it's see, but I, the problem is like it is better than like a lot of other things. Oh yes, <laughs> I don't deny it. I just that theme song and the lack of conflict in that movie. It's baby's first movie. You know, it's like you can show it to uh, some kid that's under seven, and they would probably absolutely love it. But um, like anybody else above that would be like, where was this? Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, think the reason that I like The Wind Rises so much is because like all the fantastical stuff in, in Miyazaki's movies and in animated movies is is really cool. And it's great that you can create these crazy worlds in an animated landscape. But I love that The Wind Rises just didn't do that at all. And it's telling a very grounded story that feels like it should be like a live action Oscar Beatty biopic type of thing, but it's told in an animated style and it's so beautiful in the way that it's done. And I think because it's so much more grounded, there aren't as many like weird loose ends that don't go anywhere. And it feels like a lot more coherent story that really works on, on a really strong level to tell a, a message that lands really hard. And And I think Maybe that's why that one sticks with me so much. And I've always also only seen it once, but I, I definitely want to go back to it. Um, yeah, I think that like for that one, um, it it's like Big Fish. Like when we watched Big Fish, I told you Big mm-hmm. Fish is like the most grounded Tim Burton movie that you'll probably watch. Aside from Ed Wood, which has its own. Right, thing. yeah. <laughs> but like Big Fish uses all of... Uh, Burton's artistic eye to accentuate this like grand story and adapt this thing. And I think that like the wind rises does the same thing. Like as grounded as it is um, the opening sequence where there's like an earthquake, the earth breathes and there's like all these accentuated pieces that just lay into the fantastical elements of like everyday life in this like, uh, like war torn sort of situation um, and like everybody around, like, I think, uh, you probably watched the dub, I'm assuming when you watched wind rises or did you, watch I the dub? believe I watched the dub, the but dub I'm, has, I'm not sure. It's been so long. I don't really remember. The dub has like Werner Herzog in it and, uh, oh, hell yeah. it's <laughs> fucking awesome. Um, but like there, there are just these moments where you get dialogue, heavy sequences and like emotional, uh, moments that are grounded, but then it'll go into like dream sequences that are just so fucking beautifully rendered. Right. And like these fantastical mm-hmm. elements of like planes that could never actually fly or work, but they then become realized. And like to show that in a live action film becomes, it makes it ordinary. It makes it like boring. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and it, it uses the full medium of like animation to to beautify it and make it as inspiring as it probably felt to to um the the main character i can't remember his name um but like yeah just fucking beautiful stuff so i totally understand that um but yeah now, uh, I, I, I will say also, yeah there are ghibli films that aren't miyazaki but there are very few that like come through to the level of Miyazaki, like it is Ghibli and Miyazaki are yeah. almost synonymous. John and I watched The Red Turtle a few years ago, and that was interesting. Yeah. The Red Turtle yeah. is a standout, and Princess Grave of the Kaguya. Fireflies is Grave a standout. Grave of the Fireflies to me is like is also like up there in the top three. If we talk about Ghibli, like it is easily the best oh, non Miyazaki. Uh, and like Whisper of the Heart was written by Miyazaki, but directed by someone else. And like, it's pretty good, but it's honestly probably more the writing that maybe mm-hmm. wins that over than necessarily directing. Cause it doesn't have the like amazing things that are going on. Like when you look at the boy in there and yeah. Uh, well, Ryan, you want to take us home? Are we good? Yeah, let's, uh, let's, yeah, I was going to say our, our final thoughts and, and what we think of it overall is a watch. It's a watch. It's absolutely a watch. I think this is. Just a, the animation is amazing. You know, there's so many things to pick apart. I do think people will talk about this for a long time. Um, it probably won't be as marketable as other Ghibli movies or Miyazaki movies. I don't know that there's going to be t-shirts of this one. Um, but it is really awesome. And it is like one of the best animated movies in a while. Like it absolutely should be watched. I want to get John a t-shirt of the heron grinning with its with big its, fucking teeth. Oh, fucking God. Teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the parakeet. I was like, that's a great idea. Oh, no, no. Like, I want, like, with the heron's head is, like, disturbing across the whole chest and just, like, a big fucking like rope. shark cat. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And then yeah. the back of the shirt is that pelican just bleeding out of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That should, they should make that a plushie. I'm sure that would yeah. go over well. <laughs> you, you, you squeeze it and it oozes. Yeah. The, <laughs> the little voice box says kill me <laughs> <laughs> it's willem defoe yeah john oh, what's your uh your recommend or refute i i gotta go with a recommend for this one like it it is yeah it's beautifully animated it's fantastical it's something that you have not seen before and um also i'm just biased because it has a shit ton of parakeets in it and they're fucking <laughs> they're so dumb and adorable and <laughs> fucking weird and uh yeah it's just like i'm a sucker for that like i I don't know i can't the entire movie i couldn't tell like the latter half of the movie became a whole thing for me where i was trying to dissociate myself from loving birds because i was just like i own these things like if i could have pets of them i i can't i don't know if i like this movie because of this or the other stuff and by the end i was like no i'm pretty sure i like it because it's fucking rad like just a lot of the animation in it (laughs) a lot of the messaging behind it um I, i fucking loved it I really want to hear Dave Bautista in the English dub. I'm sure he does a great job. Um, but yeah, I, I would recommend it um, wholeheartedly. John, if you're imprisoning something in your house, would you say that you love it or that you are being very cruel toward it? Um, I would say that <laughs> if I'm imprisoning it, I rescued it from being an invasive species. Uh-huh. I love it. And I let it fly around my house and shit on my furniture because I love it. Um, and I have to clean that shit. Everybody. That's that's why my ass is wet. Yeah, you're sitting in it right now. Yeah. <laughs> you're being covered by it. Look, there they go. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I also appreciated they used real parakeet screeches whenever they all freak out. 
<laughs> anytime in the movie. So I was just like, yep, that's exactly what they sound like. They're that fucking annoying. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even mention uh, the like, I think the sound design fully work and this was also really awesome like footsteps yeah. and bird flapping and like yeah, yeah it was really great i'm pretty sure they did an atmos uh track for this like yeah it, it, the sound design was really good yeah, great yeah. Oh, overall like we didn't even say that either but like this was the f- only ghibli movie that's been done for imax not just me as i only ghibli movie done for imax and yeah the sound and the scale of it and everything like this is a perfect imax experience too mm-hmm mm. Uh, Dixon, yeah. do, would you recommend Boy in the Heron? I would definitely recommend it. I mean, we all just went around and, and had it at, toward the top <laughs> of our Miyazaki rankings. So we would definitely recommend it. Um, yeah, it's great. I think I just, I just want to reiterate that, like, how well drawn this fucking thing is. Like, the characters are all super fantastical and, and interesting to look at. But, like, the fucking background nature scenes are just beautiful. Yeah. Like, they really look like they have been painted and it, it's just gorgeous to look at and i i loved the nature animation style that they put into the film and i think just that alone is worth seeing it on the biggest screen that you can find um but you know it, it's a really great theatrical experience and uh you should go seek it out yeah those wide shots of like the ocean too with the ships in the distance mm-hmm. like, just yeah. fucking beautiful like any of gorgeous. those i would love to have as like a painting or a poster or anything it's just awesome mm-hmm Cool. All right. Well, I have been your host tonight, Ryan King, and joining me as always, John Garcia. I don't have anything. I'm sorry. I, I'm all I'm covered in You're bird shit, everybody. Yeah. I'm covered in bird <laughs> shit constantly. You don't, you don't have anything about balancing blocks? No, no I'm not going to try to balance these blocks. <laughs> and also, I talk to myself out. Michael Dixon, thanks for putting up with John's bird shit. <laughs> <laughs> You've been That's fucking great. thinking on That's that one, great. haven't you? You sat on it. <laughs> hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.